You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Well, I'm okay, but I'm not the one who's coming off a book tour that took me zigzagging across the country to such locales as Portland, Oregon, and Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Bozeman, Montana. I gotta be honest with you. Uh, I'm treading water a little bit, just trying to keep my head above the, the surface of things here, especially vis-a-vis mixed martial arts this past week that I, I just didn't, you know, I couldn't watch either of these UFC events or uh, uh, Bellator event live, so I had to play some catch-up upon returning from this mini book tour that I was on the past week, uh, but that in and of itself was great fun. I got to get out to uh, Portland and Ann Arbor, as you said, Bozeman, Montana, across the state here. Uh, I'll be going to Great Falls, Montana tomorrow night. I still don't believe Great Falls has a bookstore. Cassiopeia Books at 7 p.m. That doesn't sound real. That's a trap. Beware, my friend. That sounds like a trap to me. If you are listening to the sound of my voice in northern Montana, anywhere on the high line, you can drive in and fact check this story for yourself and see whether Cassiopeia Books actually exists. I will be there at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, 7-19, July 19th. I have not yet... Check this out, but I'm pretty sure that if you rearrange the letters in Cassiopeia books, it spells out ambush Chad Dundas. That could be it. It uh, it could be a trap. I figured Ann Arbor would be a trap because I had no idea why they would send me to Michigan, but it turned out there are just some nice uh, wrestling fans who own the bookstore there, and uh, we had that's a, all it takes. Huh? Yeah, we had a great conversation about wrestling and mixed martial arts. You know what the best part was, though, Ben, at all of these tour stops, I got to meet a handful of co-main event podcast people, and they were delightful from top to bottom, all the way around. So you look out there in the audience and just see Dundasso t-shirts. Couple of Dundasso t-shirts at every event, which I was stoked to see, because that makes the, that makes my people easy to pick out. Those are the people where I look out there in the crowd and I think, oh, this person knows what's up. This isn't just, a rando off the street rolling in, look, trying to get out of the rain, is going to sit in the back and ask me a question about the creative process. You see that done? Where do you get shirt? your ideas, says the person who just tried to come in out of the rain. Chili cheese nacho stain on it. You know, that's a CME loyal listener. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, Champion of the World has been out on bookshelves for, a, for exactly one week today. Or no, a week tomorrow. Yes. I'm already always thinking a day ahead with this stuff. And how, how do you feel so far about how the whole process is going? I feel terrific. I think it's done, done well. Uh, I know nothing about sales numbers yet and probably won't for several months, just to answer the several people who have emailed the podcast to inquire. Uh, but I do appreciate all of the, especially co-main event podcast listeners who have bought the book, who have tweeted me about the book, who have professed that they like the book. I got an email from friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs, yesterday telling me he had finished the book and thought that he liked it, so... It's always great to hear from, uh, you know, friends of the podcast. Yeah. Prominent people. Discerning reader, Danny Boy Downs. But Ben, I have one more ask for the people out there. Oh, no. This to, uh, to uh, pad the lists of people who, who feel like I'm promoting the book too much. One more ask in, sure. uh, in this Why whole podcast process. Why not? Is it, you want me to take the shirt off my back? Is no. that what you want? No, sir. I've seen those Facebook pictures of you without your shirt on quite enough. 
keep your shirt on your back. Don't let the don't let the jealousy get to you. Plus, I don't even know how you would get the shirt up over the pile of trash neck. I assume that, like Brock Lesnar, you need help to get your shirt off. I have a team. The ask, Ben, is that anybody out there who bought the book, thank you, by the way, and anybody out there who read the book, thank you, by the way, and if you liked the book, thank you for that, on top of everything else, what I need you to do now is leave me a positive review somewhere on the internets. Go to Amazon and leave a positive review. Go to iBooks. If that's where you bought it, leave leave a positive review. Goodreads, perhaps, if Good you're into reads, that. if you were a member of that particular social uh, literature-based site where you can follow me, by the way, as an author. You could leave a, a review there. All that stuff, disquietingly important in today's literary world. <laughs> I have two questions. One, I have two answers. Does the person need to have read the book? I think it helps. I think it helps. Two, does it have to be positive or can people keep it real? Uh, it has to be positive. <laughs> no, I would say this. If, if you liked the book and you want to leave it a positive review, I would uh, I would be very much in your debt. If you didn't like the book, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to keep that to yourself. <laughs> Maybe they can send you a private email. Yeah, address that in an email. Yeah. Dear sir, thank you for wasting several hours of my time. People keep asking us if we're going to do my book as a co-main event podcast book club book, which feels a little insular to me oh yeah no you don't want to spend too much of the time on this podcast just promoting your own book how how much how many minutes are we into no, we're this five thing? minutes in here okay we but i mean about anything other than your book you have okay. to shoulder the blame for some of that because you went ahead and asked follow-up questions when oh. i was pretty much done talking sorry about i didn't realize you're doing your ad read uh i i think we could do a a book club version of the book however you're going to have to be prepared to, to answer the hard questions. It's not all going to be teddy bears and rainbows up in here for Chad Dundas to, to have just another long advertising segment for his book on the podcast. It's going to get real up okay. in here. I feel ready for that. I feel I could do that. What of Sean O'Connell, though? And uh, hell, hell bound, heaven sent. I talked to some people in Michigan. Talked to some people in Michigan who had read that book. Uh, and the anger was palpable. Just radiating off them. Their bodies were like taut pieces of wire. So wait. <laughs> well, see, this is novelist Chad Dundas, everybody. Describes their bodies as taut pieces of wire. Uh, they were angry that they had read it or they were angry that they had read it and that we had not done the book club? Both. Yes. They felt that they had read it, you know, as on our behalf, at our behest. And then we had not, you and I have not finished the book. Certainly. I would say and that while I feel that their anger is justified... The fact that they're angry at having read it does not motivate me to continue reading it because it's really long. It is very long. And I looked at it while I was on the plane. I looked at it on my Kindle and saw that I was still only 2% into it. So I, I would have some work to do. Got my work cut out for me. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll we, think about this We'll one. figure this out. We better get to the actual mixed martial arts talk, though. Three rounds, as usual, in the co-main event podcast. In round number one... So do we have to retire the phrase, get your whole shit broke, now that it actually has happened to Evangelista Cyborg Santos? And in round number two, we're just going to go ahead and spend 10 minutes making a list of things we'd rather do than trade punches with John Lineker. Number one, trade punches with almost any other 135-pound person in the world. Number two, slam Ben's penis in a car door. That seems unnecessary. And number three, in round number three, Holly Holmes' path to UFC stardom takes a strange jag this weekend as she enters a must-win bout against Bellator heavyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko. 
That's, I, I mean, that she did. sounds like I she see could what be, you did there. Right. All that plus just saying stuff. And are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes from Darnell Jameson, who writes, guys, you know, when the UFC sends out those messages that just say the UFC has released a statement about so-and-so and it's never good news, always bad. I just read the least surprising one of all time saying that Brock Lesnar has been flagged by USADA for a potential PEDs violation. Who would have thought, right? I guess I'm just saying. Oh, so there's just saying stuff in here. Yeah. From Darnell. Why not? I guess I'm just saying maybe this is the excuse America needs to fully disavow Lesnar and say, ah, fuck it. You can have him, Canada. Also, what is Mark Hunt supposed to make of this? So this this email to the podcast came in before Mark Hunt started making things of this. Yeah. Making hay of it, you might say. Made a few things of this. Also, if we're going to start disavowing people as a country... Uh, whenever they're popped by USADA, we're going to be busy, I feel. Us and the nation of Brazil are going to be bu- <laughs> busy in the coming months. Well, I think that Darnell Jameson just means Lesnar, once proud American, now lives in Canada. So it gives I know, us. I get it. It gives us as Americans an obvious out to just say, you know, he was always clean when he lived here in the States. <laughs> Suddenly he goes up there to Canada. He's living on this compound in Saskatchewan. Go Rough Riders, by the way. Uh, suddenly. He pops dirty. You tell me what changed about Brock Lesnar's uh, about Brock Lesnar's process. Interesting. You should ask that question, Chad, because I have an answer about what changed, and it is USADA. Okay, USADA you is go. what changed. For one thing, if you're one of those people who was like, "Hey, the WWE has a wellness policy," all right, it's not like he's just been off doing whatever he wants to do. Maybe you need to rethink that because he's been under the wellness policy for what, like three years or something? And then he comes in and he's got a month, like basically a month of USADA testing. Boom, he gets nailed. Right. Uh, that makes you think. It's Well, yeah, it seems like the UFC like kind of brought this on themselves, right? By offering Brock Lesnar that waiver that he would not have to spend four months on the shelf, which I like to call the prerequisite drying out period for anyone <laughs> who comes back, especially if you're coming from the world of professional wrestling. Uh, then he shows up looking large and in charge. Jacked white boy. Deal All with nationalities it. matter. Deal with it. Hashtag woke Brock Lesnar. Uh, he beats Mark Hunt. Uh, he turns an odd color of purple. Like, Lesnar was looking kind of weird this entire week, right? Does, he just looked like Lesnar. I guess. I thought he was looking weird from the neck up. Hey, well, he looks weird as a person. Like He looks like an action figure come to life. So, I, when has he not looked weird? Then he pops positive for, do we know what it was yet? Or I don't believe we do. Not at the time of this recording. And the, uh, I mean, I guess the, the, the collective response from the mixed martial arts world is, um, was, I'm not surprised, motherfucker. Uh, but yeah, so lo- the, there were a lot of gray areas around Lesnar here. I think we should talk about how this affects Mark Hunt, uh, before we move on. But also the biggest question about Brock Lesnar was, was whether or not we would see him fight again inside the octagon. Now, maybe, maybe this was the result of a tainted supplement and he lucks out and picks up a six month vacation, which would probably be, you know, uh, shorter, a shorter time than we were thinking he would return anyway. But what if Brock Lesnar gets slapped with a longer thing? That seems to answer that question about whether or not we would be seeing Brock Lesnar in the octagon again. Yeah, that would. If you get a two year ban or something from USADA, we can kind of forget about Brock Lesnar for a while and move on. Also, though, I think the, the thing that is so damning to me about the, the, the angle of the UFC waving that four month period, uh, of the USADA testing before somebody can come out of retirement is for one thing, people pointed that out when we first heard about it 
it's the like one of the only examples I can think of right now where the USADA rules have a rule in them where the UFC can just decide on all on its own without even giving a reason we don't want to abide by the rules here. It exercised that one, and it's I think the first time that it has exercised a rule to not allow the not follow the USADA rules, and look how it turns out. It's a, just a terrible. Uh, intersection of events for the UFC to have to uh, you, you take some crap for this when you announce the decision and then the thing that the whole thing was meant to avoid ends up happening anyway where the dude test positive for a test taken before the fight but he was still allowed to go out there and fight and punch Mark Hunt in the head a bunch just doing Mark Hunt no favors at this point um and I guess maybe that leads us into the hay that Mark Hunt is making of it. As yeah, you from little that I've been able to read about it so far, it seems like Mark Hunt has had the appropriate response to this. First, like saying he wanted 20% of Brock Lesnar's purse and then going bigger than that. Or no, he said he wanted half. Wanted half. And then, and then he, he wanted said it he all. wanted it all, which bravo, Mark Hunt. I think and he should have stuck with half. Maybe you think, but, but I, I can picture in my mind Mark Hunt having some time to think about it and then being like, you know what? Screw half. I want everything. Well, and you could have, Mark Hunt keeps pointing out how often he has fought dudes who turn out to have some performance enhancing stuff going on, uh, an awful lot of the time, it seems. And I, he, you know, he raised the suspicion about Brock Lesnar before this fight. The suspicion's kind of confirmed. I mean, obviously we don't know yet what he tested positive for. Uh, but Lesnar's response wasn't exactly a damn you all. I didn't do this kind of thing. So I, when Mark Hunt comes out there and asks for, I think he's better off asking for half because I think you can make a pretty good point when you say, hey, if he had missed weight, 20% of his money would have gone to me, yeah. right? Uh, or maybe depending on where they do it, 20% of his money would be taken and some of it would go to me. Maybe sometimes some of it goes to the athletic commission. But if he did something worse, took PEDs, then went out there and punched me in the head a whole bunch, shouldn't there be a fine? And then shouldn't I then be the beneficiary of that fine? That honestly seems like a pretty good rule just moving forward. Now, since I was on the road, I, I missed this, Ben. How did the press conference that Brock Lesnar must have called with his manager and his crisis management team, how did that go? Yeah. Um, I'm, I must have missed it, too. He went ahead and skipped that step? <laughs> I, think, I think that uh, maybe it was poorly attended because I didn't hear about it. Next question this week comes from Mark Springall. He writes, okay, so I've only just had time to catch up with UFC Fight 991, you and me both, Mark, and I must admit that it has probably my two favorite fights of the year. Lewis Smolka versus Ben Wynn. What a fight, exclamation point. And then Tony Ferguson, or T. Ferg, versus Landon, Lando? Uh, Venata. Two quite different, but ultimately awesome fights. Discuss. I'm going to, yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And I saw, Ben, that you had written uh, a piece on MMA Junkie about how UFC 200 kind of underwhelmed as it turned out once we got to see the actual fights and then this Fight Night 91 event. Uh, have we nailed down where that was yet? Sioux City or Sioux Falls? Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls, South Sioux Dakota? Sioux City is Iowa. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Okay, so we now we've got that. We've got that under under lock and key. Yeah. Good. Good we are in possession of that information now. Uh, you start out the main card with the first round of Ben Wynn versus Lewis Smoka, which was just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and ben Especially Wynn, for the jujitsu nerds out there. Yeah, Ben Wynn, by the way, just comes out th th throwing them bungalows from the word go, which was awesome. Uh, and then eventually you get to your co-main event of of Tony Ferguson versus Lando Venata. And I think in both cases, 
It was like the best possible case scenario for the losers, especially for Venata, who was making his UFC debut on short notice, a division up from where he normally fights. And against Tony goddamn Ferguson. Against El Kakui, the boogeyman, and just comes out there with swagger to spare, hands down. Throwing spinning back fists. What I would describe as sauntering all over the cage and affords himself nicely like... I think the way that Tony Ferguson won this was kind of the best case scenario for this fight because it didn't spoil Ferguson in the lightweight rankings. Like he's still a major player there. We still want to see him fight all the top guys. And yet I'm speaking just for myself here, but I think this is probably a widely held opinion. I came away from this fight being like, I want to see groovy Lando Venata fight again. I want to see him fight in his natural weight class, and he looks like he could be a capital G guy in that division. Absolutely, he does. And, you know, yeah, it was interesting how this was the fourth fight card in seven days for the UFC, the only one of those four to not have a title fight on it. And it was arguably the best, uh, or at least one of the best, and at least for just pure entertainment value, delivered a lot more action than we saw from the main card at UFC 200. And so I could also, though, understand how a lot of people might have skipped this one, feeling like, you know what, I watched three events in three days, the last of which I paid 60 bucks for, and it didn't exactly light my hair on fire. Then you come to me from Wednesday night in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I don't know, man. I'll DVR it, and I'll get back with you. Uh, and hopefully those people got the message that there was a, a lot to enjoy here. And I know we'll talk about them later, but before, besides these two fights, the main event with John Lineker and Michael McDonald – only two and a half minutes long, basically, with plenty of fireworks in that sure, one, too. For sure. Uh, Lando Venata, a Brandon Gibson protege out of the uh, Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn camp down there in Albuquerque. A dude that I think we can safely say at this point is living his gimmick, right? And <laughs> that way when he shows up in a purple suit yeah. at the afterwards. His nickname is Groovy Lando, and it seems like all the way around he's kind of uh, putting out that vibe. Well, and it seems like a lot of us might not have heard of him when we heard that he was going to step in on short notice to take on Tony Ferguson, but I, I got a lot of feedback from uh, Jackson's MMA people right away where they were all saying, like, hey, look out for this dude. It is it is a tough ask to have him go in there on short notice in his USA debut against Tony Ferguson, but that doesn't mean that he's a dead man walking in there, and they, they were right. You, you see when that guy went out there, not at all awed by the moment. Right, yeah, this was his first loss, and he's been kind of whooping up on fools at, at, in the smaller uh, organizations at Featherweight. Anyway, next question this week comes to us from John Oaks. He writes, while your UFC fighters are popping hot with USADA, leaving fans brokenhearted, the mystical and ancient land of Japan has opened its paper-thin doors to fighters like Mirko Krokop Filipovich and Vanderlei Silva. In Japan, my friends, you can snort melodium into your brain pan or inject HGA into HGH into your eyeballs just so long as you do it sitting down cross-legged next to a tiny table. How many Japanese stereotypes are we going to Well, I'm only about halfway through okay. this, so I think we got time. Not only is Ryzen FF hosting these two aging combatants, it's bringing a few other gems to the party for its Grand Prix, namely Baruto. Baruto it says in the email, pause for yelling. Baruto! Baruto! That's right. We could, we could get to see Crow Cop, uh, pharmaceutically resurrected into his martial times, head kicking the shit out of Baruto. Whoa, whoa, Okay, I guess I'll just keep going. All <laughs> as part of a crazy one night tournament. I don't know about you guys, but things here in America are looking pretty rough. 
I need this. In fact, I'm thinking of just saying fuck it and hauling my family to J- Japan. Radiation, tsunamis, overcrowding? Sounds better by the day, so long as there is a wildly unregulated MMA. I don't know if this question is about Japanese MMA, the existential threats facing us from all sides, or Sakakabara being the Trump of MMA. Is he making MMA great again? Wow. There's a lot going on in that, that question. John Oaks just just bringing it all to the table. Okay, here's what I'll say in response to the last part about making MMA great again. My thesis is that the only way you can really do this now, what Ryzen is doing a few times a year with just a complete wacky shit that seems to completely disregard all the safety measures we have been moving to gradually over the years in MMA, is because it seems like a brief break from the more serious stuff. Right. If it was all just like this, we wouldn't like it. We wouldn't like it for very long. We would get tired of it. We would get angry with it. Uh, somebody would get killed, and it would not be very much fun. But since it's not all like this, since the rest of it is moving in one direction, and somebody can pop up a couple times a year to just be like, oh, yeah, but hey, remember when it was just completely stupid, and nobody told you what to do, and you could do absolutely anything? We, we can still do that, and we will a few times a year. Then I think you can get people into it. So you're saying it's like the $3 bottle of champagne of MMA. Sure. I don't want to argue about that one. You don't want to drink it every day, right? (laughs) Well, you don't want to drink it every day. No, I'm not not a rapper. Here's the question about Miracle Crow Cop, though. Pharmaceutically resurrected into his martial times, I thought one of the things he would have us believe of his blog post was that he was not retiring because he knew he was going to get in trouble with USADA. He was retiring because his body couldn't do it anymore, even with the various cocktails of drugs that he had tried. His body just couldn't handle it. So now what? Well, he's coming back for the rise, and maybe he just thinks that uh, that dudes like Baruto and Vanderlei Silva, like he's he's good to go, martial times wise against those guys. Whereas maybe if he's supposed to go out there and fight top level UFC heavyweights, maybe not so much. Even mid level UFC heavyweights, maybe not so much. Where he and Vanderlei are supposedly going to get a buy in the first round of this tournament, so that is maybe that, that the helps. old man's buy? Is that the <laughs> yes. is that, as long as you're of a certain age, you can get a buy in the first round of the tournament? Seems that way. I support it. I definitely I support it. I bet you it. do. Uh, let's see here. We got what one more this week from uh, from Wayne Martin, who writes, Dudes, Melendez versus Barboza seems like it could be madness. I'm pumped. Are you? So obviously he's referring to the co-main event of this coming UFC event that is this Saturday night, the one that is headlined by Holly Holm against Bellator heavyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, the co-main event on that card is Gilbert Melendez versus Edson Barboza, which I'm going to come out and say, yeah, that seems like it could be madness. And uh, you are right to be pumped. And in fact, um, you know, there's a couple few little gems on this on this fight night card. Or this is not a fight night. This is UFC, UFC on Fox. UFC on Fox, yeah. Well, dear Lord. Uh, so, yeah, it looks good for a fight night card. Looks like fair to Midland for a UFC on Fox card, I guess you would say. Yeah, well, and when you, I think this is what we're going to see that people wondered about before UFC 200 when we were calling for the UFC to just stack it to the gills. And you had, you know, three events in three days, four events in a week. And you wonder, what are you going to have left for the stuff after that? I mean, it's just pretty busy July all the way around, even without, you know, thinking about that one week period. And maybe that's some of what you're seeing when you look at that card is that it's a little bit of the, the not a whole lot of bullets left in the gun after loading up like that. Yeah, it's going to take him a little while to reload, I suppose. Although, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the Holly Holm fight, which is an important one, obviously, at women's bantamweight. So, uh, uh, 
even you know when even when the UFC is like not operating a, on full strength, it still it still is a, a veritable uh, embarrassment of riches over there. Yeah. Like, well, and and to the question about it, it does seem like Edson Barboza versus Gil Melendez on paper seems like it could be an awesome action packed fight. Also, a very very big one for Gilbert Melendez, uh, seeing where he is in his career at this point. You know, he's this is his first fight after. Uh, his suspension for for his own anti-doping policy violation. You, you look at him; he's lost three of his last four. Even if you could think that he didn't deserve to lose a decision against Eddie Alvarez, new UFC lightweight champ Eddie Alvarez, you're still looking at a guy who's lost three or four and coming off of a, a year-long suspension. He kind of needs to go in there and win. Yeah, especially since you know he does have that loss uh, to the new champ, but but Melendez is still considered a guy who can be a tough fight for all of the those elite fighters in the 155 pound division and is indeed considered an elite fighter in the 155 pound division so you come off this suspension for peds you definitely need to beat a dude like edson barboza if you were going to go on being uh considered among the best fighters at that very competitive weight class and you know in addition to that melendez was a dude who at the time that he signed his first ufc contract uh, was believed to have twisted their arm a little bit and got himself a good financial deal. Uh, if you want the, uh, the those happy times to continue in the Melendez household, you got to win these fights. Otherwise, you're going to be out there fighting for less than Sage Northcutt money before you know it. Well, you'd be fighting for Sage North less than Sage Northcutt money, and you're right there with most of the UFC. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comadevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days when we're not recording the podcast. There's always news. It's always fun and informative. The, the newsletter itself is short. We think you'll like it. You can sign up right there on the homepage, comainevent.com. If it turns out that somehow you are not a, a person of high taste and you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Evangelista Cyborg Santos came out of his Bellator bout this past weekend with Michael Jerome Reese Page with an actual literal dent in the middle of his forehead and an x-ray uh, posted to the web, I believe, by his ex-wife, right? Yes. Chris Cyborg Santos. Uh, Cyborg Justino. Justino. Uh, and I saw you also tweet about this saying, just when you think you've seen the bottom of the barrel in terms of MMA injuries, something comes along to, uh, to take the cake. And this is certainly that one. Uh, is this just a freak happening or are we going to make some hay here over, uh, the Bellator matchmaking strategy and the idea that, that Michael Page and Cyborg Santos was an enormous mismatch that ended in a gruesome injury? You know, I won't call it an enormous mismatch, but I don't think that you necessarily have to choose between freak thing and maybe kind of a consequence of some decisions. Yeah, it could be both. It could be both things at once. Especially because, and I just uh, did a video on this that should be up later, 
when you look at it, Cyborg Santos fought like two months ago, suffered a, a TKO loss in May uh, against Saad Awad and was he got a suspension, a medical suspension for I believe 45 days after that, a 30 day no contact uh, stipulation in there. And you know how they do it where sometimes it'll be like, okay, you, your hand is hurt, so you can't no contact for 60 days, but unless you get cleared by a doctor sooner. And the no contact part was kind of unconditional. Like, it doesn't matter what you get any doctor to say, you're not supposed to have any contact. And we all know how difficult those are to enforce and how most of the time athletic commissions don't really bother even trying to figure out whether you're following that or whether you're getting right back in the gym sparring again. But if he follows the rules, he's got 30 days after that fight in May where he can't have any contact, any sparring, anything like that, uh, and, which would then leave him only about 30 days to get ready for this fight. If he follows the whole, you know, 45 days before while you're out of action stuff, you just don't have a whole lot of time to even get ready for a fight like this. Um, and then you go in there and get your whole shit broke. Uh, kind of seems like, while it doesn't seem like there's a direct through line, like a one definitely caused the other, you have to consider the role that one might have played in the other, do you not? Yeah, I think so. And I think Bellator's reputation precedes it a little bit. Like, this is one of those things that, that if you didn't already, this reinforces the idea that, well, we have a pattern now. Not only a pattern of behavior, but a pattern of consequences, which uh, kind of makes this Bellator matchmaking style uh, feel like it has crossed the line from funny and silly into potentially dangerous. Even if Page against Santos wasn't an enormous mismatch, this was definitely a situation where the feeling exists that you're going out there to try to get Michael Page a win. You're and, trying to get him a win over somebody with a name. Sure, because he's been cleaning the clocks of of guys – uh, that we've never heard of before in Bellator for a while now. His biggest win previous to this has probably been Nashawn Burrell in Bellator at 128 back in October of 2014. So you want to improve uh, Michael Page to 11-0 and here, and you want to get him a win over a veteran and a guy people know. But at the same time, you know, Cyborg Santos is just 3-5 and uh, five in his last eight fights. That takes you all the way back to the beginning of 2011. Uh Another thing you'll note if you scan down his Wikipedia page is that he seems to have a pretty good record against guys who don't have Wikipedia pages and not that great of a record against guys who do have Wikipedia pages, which means that perhaps he's been uh, the recipient of, of some of cleaning up on lesser competition himself. Uh, and this just doesn't seem like a fight that Bellator would make if they thought Michael Page was going to lose, seeing as how he's one of their biggest uh, talent betting chips at this point. Yeah, and you can see when you watch the guy's fighting style, you can see why that's the case. Uh, he's an exciting guy to watch, uh, and he has a talent for pulling off these exciting finishes. And I'm sure Bellator thought that they had a plan that had worked to perfection uh, in the immediate aftermath of this fight because you have a great highlight knockout that obviously people are going to share all over social media. Then the guy goes and gets a Pokemon ball. A Pokemon ball, Chad. Yep. I don't know. I'm sure neither one of us knows the first thing about this, but I know enough about the Pokemon craze to know that it seems to have taken over with the youth. So it's got to be a Again, timely. It's back. Yeah. A timely thing for him to go out there and roll this Pokemon ball. And he's making like a cultural reference point that all the, all the young millennials out there are going to get. And you got to think that Bellator is looking at each other going, all right, we did it. Viral video unlocked. Uh, and then you have the 
also somewhat viral sharing of the guy's crumbling skull. Right, the much bigger viral sharing of a guy's crumbling skull for, I think, obvious reasons than the dude's pre-planned Pokemon celebration. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yeah, like that, that does offer kind of a sobering reminder that this is a dangerous sport to be trying to craft certain outcomes in. Right. Uh, and, you know, like you said, I don't think this one is a huge mismatch on paper, but you do look at Michael Page as a guy who's 11-0, and here he is fighting uh, Cyborg Santos, who's coming off a loss two months ago. The last dude before this that Michael Page fought, I believe, was also coming off a loss. I looked at it, and people might want to recheck, but I believe, going back and looking at it, three of his last five opponents were coming off losses, and he's undefeated. He's 11 and 0. At what yeah. point, you know, if he were in the UFC, which we'll, we'll give the UFC some shit for some, uh, very careful matchmaking at times, particularly with dudes whose name rhyme with Gage Borf cut. So for example, just keep going. I'll figure it out. All right. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you see that, but you know, if the dude was 11 and 0 and uh, a hot prospect in the UFC, We'd probably have seen him against somebody else coming on off of, of their own little bit of a streak going by now, you know? Yeah, especially since now in Bellator, like, you don't really have as much of a lack of talent argument to present at that weight. Like, you could have Michael Page easily fight Benson Henderson. I'm sure Benson Henderson would be up for that. You could probably have him fight Josh Thompson. You know, I bet Josh Thompson would be up for that. And then you got, you know, the, 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 uh, the champion who recently made Benson Henderson look like a tiny, tiny uh, child of a man when they fought in, in Henderson's Bellator debut. It's like, you're not hurting for dudes that Michael Page could fight. So at this point, I guess the question is how long can you go on matching him in these uh, kind of uh, pushover fights before you step him up in competition, especially since, Oh, spoiler alert, newsflash, it might be kind of dangerous at this point to have him going out there and fighting guys who are, uh, you know, a, a step behind him in terms of abilities. Uh, and that also makes, frankly, Mike, Michael Page a really hard guy to quantify in terms of what kind of talent he is. Uh, because, you know, he has this like Anderson Silva style body. He's six foot three, long and lanky, very tall for that weight at 170 pounds. Uh, and he certainly makes it look good when he's out there with the dancing and whatnot. But uh, you do have to wonder how he would do against someone of slightly, you know, a slightly more rounded skill set and a better skill set, especially after uh, I think you could at least make the argument that Cyborg Xandos won that first round with takedowns and, and control on the ground. Well, you know, I think that the – we don't want to make too great of a attempt to connect like, hey, Bellator put a guy who is dangerously unprepared. to It's not like you know he gets out there and he's being overwhelmed and strikes upon strikes are just piling up on him. Some of this was kind of a freak thing. Right, for sure. Yeah, it was not a complete – mismatch but at the same time it's it's it is a fight that i think everyone knew who was going to win or you knew who the promoter thought was going to win for right. sure uh, and when you think about cyborg santos now I, I believe he's 38 just had a skull caved in you gotta think that's a career ender could have been a life ender definitely going to be a life alterer uh you know nice of bellator to pay his win bonus i i don't know if we should be giving bellator quite so many props for paying his medical bills because that's just what you kind of have to do as a promoter i'd be more uh apt to give you some some do daps if you tell me you're going to pay for his ongoing medical costs of which you got to think there are going to be some uh but this is one of those instances that makes you think like okay 
So after we get over the, the GoFundMe stuff and we all kind of forget about what happened to poor Cyborg Santos in there, does he go off and he and his crushed skull are his, his own problem? Let me just say that as a 38-year-old man myself, I would like to believe that I am beyond the danger zone of getting my skull crushed. Like, I would have liked to, I would like to believe that I've left those times in the past, similar to Merkel Krokop and his martial times. Uh, I'll and crush I, your skull right I now. I cannot imagine getting my skull crushed by another man's knee at this age. So, uh, from one old man to another, my heart goes out to Evangelista Cyborg Santos, who does seem like he might have a, uh, you know, a challenging path ahead. I don't know exactly how much th- this will affect him, in a, you know, in his life moving forward. Uh, but when you see a dude get the front of his skull crumbled by Michael Page's knee, it does seem like he came pretty close to being killed. Yeah. And killed, let me say, in an extremely gruesome way. Yeah. As part of his of this mixed martial arts fight. And one of the awful things about seeing him take that knee, fall right to the ground, lay there kicking his legs, is it seems like he didn't he was not even offered the brief respite of unconsciousness as no. an escape from it. No. All right, well, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we will uh, we'll move on to round number two? Sure. All right, Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, we mentioned Brock Lesnar's potential anti-doping policy violation earlier during Listener Mail, and we even touched a little bit on his lack of a crisis response team to, to deal with it. And instead, Chad, you know what he said in his statement to the Associated Press? He said that we will get to the bottom of it. Oh, okay. He's on the case. Are you fucking kidding me? That's not – you're just so caught between an actual defense and basically just admitting that you did it. You might as well choose one side or the other because when you tell us we will get to the bottom of it, you're not even saying that you didn't do it really. You're definitely not launching a passionate defense that you can't believe your good name has possibly been mis- besmirched in this fashion it's just the most half-assed way you could deal with it. Are you fucking kidding me, Brock Lesnar? So Brock Lesnar... Get Paul Heyman to step in there and, and write something down for you, man. Brock Lesnar has donned his deerstalker cap. He's got a, his big pipe and his cape, and he's on the case. He's out there trying to find the culprit in all this. I look forward to us getting to the bottom of it. Ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to John Volante, UFC uh, light heavyweight. That It, it seemed like your... Uh, your employer, MMA Junkie, caught up with him for a video interview this past week. Was wearing a polo shirt on a patio somewhere. Don't know if Mr. Volante had had any soda pops prior to the uh, prior to the interview. It seemed like one where John Volante, in his mind, he was thinking, "I'm crushing this. <laughs> like I'm being super entertaining. Everyone's gonna see this, and uh, they're gonna think that I should be start getting some big fights that I totally deserve." I just want to read two quotes from this interview with MMA Junkie. The first one. John Volante talking about who he might like to fight next. He says, I like that last guy, the hockey guy. Boss, I think his name was. Okay. Are you fucking kidding me, John Volante? That's Steve Bosse you're talking about there. The next quote. Bosse, that's right. That's what we're calling him now. Bosse, yeah. It's not Steve Bosse. Bosse. Second quote here about the current light heavyweight champion, Daniel Cormier. I think I could go in there tomorrow and beat Cormier, especially the way he fought at UFC 200. That expletive was ugly. Sorry, I really do think I could go in there tomorrow and beat Cormier. I think I hit hard enough. I can stop wrestling. I mean, what else does the guy do? He laid on the guy for 15 minutes. By the guy, he means 
Anderson Silva, uh, a guy who hasn't trained and is 45 years old. Not quite, but close. And then he says, I don't know. I really think the division is wide open. It really is. And there's lots of guys in there within the top 30 that could be champion. It's just the right time on the right day. Are you fucking kidding me? Sit down, John Volante. Come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, you remember when John Lineker was kind of a flyweight who could never make flyweight reliably? I think we all remember that John Lineker. And people said, you know what? John Lineker should just go up to bantamweight. And other people said, are you crazy? He's five foot three. He's too short to be a bantamweight. He can't go in there against the the five eight monsters of the bantamweight division and possibly compete. And then he goes in there against five foot eight Michael McDonald. Build it about the same height as the champion, Dominic Cruz, and gets him sucked almost immediately into a John Lineker bungalow off and knocks him the hell out, Chad. Maybe, just maybe, all this talk about John Lineker being uh, too diminutive for the bantamweight division did not take into account that he has actual nuclear weapons in his fists. Yeah, and I think we should point out that John Lineker was a bantamweight during the early part of his career. He went 19 and 5, uh, in Brazil in organizations like Jungle Fight and, and Shuto Brazil and stuff like that, largely fighting at bantamweight. Uh, only went down to flyweight when he got into the UFC in the spring of 2012. And as I think everybody knows, had kind of an odyssey for himself there of trying to make weight, had a bunch of catchweight fights, missed that 125 pound limit several times. But now, Ben, dating back to September in 2015, this is the third fight in a row where he has successfully made 135 to fight at bantamweight. And they're all wins, including uh, his, his debut against uh, Cisco Rivera, uh, at bantamweight and now against Michael McDonald, another young guy who very recently was considered a real up and comer in that division. So you got to think that if, if John Lineker has found the weight, the proper weight for him to compete at, this seems kind of like trouble for the bantamweight division. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this fight showed that maybe the, just the height itself is not a deal breaker because he has that ability to get you into his kind of fight. He just comes on and he pressures you. He won't leave you alone, really. He, he gets right up in your face. And the next thing you know, something about those guys, you get hit with a good one from John Lineker and you think, well, I'm, I'm going to come back on him hard. And even Michael McDonald landed a couple good punches on him, landed a nice left hook just solidly on his jaw at one point. And John Lineker acted like a fly had landed on him. He did not seem to mind. And next thing you know, you're doing the exact thing you probably told yourself you wouldn't do. Uh, so I don't know if he can get people to do that. Then I think that it's it's not such a a bad idea for him to be a bantamweight. My concern would be when he gets up higher in the division against guys like Dominic Cruz or something. If he makes it that far, is it's not necessarily that he's just not going to be able to reach their face because he's too short. Uh, but those guys have a little bit more craft and the the foot speed to avoid. What exactly what John John Lineker likes to do, and that wouldn't necessarily change if he grew five inches overnight. 
Yeah, I think it does make him kind of an interesting matchup of styles against someone like TJ Dillashaw or Dominic Cruz, just because we both know what those guys are going to do. We know what John Lineker is going to do, and it would it would make for uh, a very suspenseful bout. I think it would. You were going to see, you know, either Dominic Cruz or TJ Dillashaw, especially Dominic Cruz, try to play that Dominic Cruz game against a guy like that, uh, and it would be super fascinating. I think to see. If the kind of like what you mentioned, the footwork and the head movement of a guy like Dominic Cruz and frankly, just the craft of a dude like Dominic Cruz uh, would beat John Lineker because that's what Cruz is doing, man. He's going out there and he's out crafting people in fighting like he's just better at all of the things that he does and he's doing it in in kind of like uh, both a cerebral way. And an athletic way, because clearly he's got everybody's offense duly scouted before he goes in there. But at the same time, you get touched on the face one time by John Lineker. It could be a, a, a game changer. So, like, honestly, I would love to see either of those fights. And now as I sit here and look, I see Lineker jumped up three spots in the official UFC rankings to number five. So there, there's not going to be a lot of other upwardly mobile choices for him besides someone like either a TJ Dillashaw you know, Uriah Faber or Brian Caraway maybe before he gets teed up for a for a title shot. Well, yeah, and you look at that division right now, and you got a lot of interesting fights that you could make. Right? You got you know Brian Caraway sitting there, and I think that you could just make that one, and a lot of people would watch it on the hopes of seeing Brian Caraway get knocked out because MMA fans don't seem like they're too too hot on him. Uh, guys like Cody Garbrandt, and and then higher up the division where you know you got the champ, you got T.J. Dillashaw, uh, who present real interesting challenges to somebody like John Lineker. I think there's a lot you could do there with bantamweight. Just it, it seems like we see this pattern happening over and over again where we tell ourselves, all right, people won't go for, for lightweights. Oh, wait a minute. It's like the most talent-rich division in the sport. But below that, it's a, it's a loss, man. Featherweight, nobody cares. Oh, wait, one of the UFC's biggest stars is a featherweight. But that's the, that's the basement, man. It won't go any lower. And now you see it happening with bantamweight. Where suddenly bantamweight seems like it could become one of the more interesting divisions. I'm just saying flyweight. It's only a matter of time. Hang in there. Hang in there, Mighty Mouse. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think especially with, with the arrival of dudes like, uh, like that fight we just saw this past weekend with, with Lewis Smolka and Ben Wynn, like those dudes, they both, they went out there and put on a crackerjack fight that I think everybody enjoyed. Kind of shows you what the ceiling can be. At, at flyweight and you are exactly right to say that business has suddenly picked up at bantamweight and at featherweight frankly uh and i was just noticing you look down these we don't want to talk too much about the ufc rankings because obviously they ridiculous but uh you look down these lists and you know who's not on either of these top 15 lists in uh at featherweight and bantamweight baruto and well no not baruto okay uh because you would need like six bantamweights <laughs> to fight baruto like wearing a trench coat and all of them sitting on each other's shoulders. That's adorable. Uh, Hannon Barrow is, is not ranked. No, wait, let me check, see if Rena and Barrio is, <laughs> is listed on here. No, I don't see him. I just gave it the once over on, on both lists. Well, he went up to, to Featherweight, yeah, he right? He went up if to I... Featherweight and lost to Jeremy Stevens, but at the same time, like, not even in the top 15 at 145. And, that, he... and I think that just goes to show you that you're dealing, like, you got so many guys. I know this also because I just did my Bleacher Report rankings for July. Uh, it's, you gotta put in work now. You wanna be in the top 10 of either of these divisions. Like, I, I can, I had to, I encountered this myself this past week where I was just like, there's just no room for Rena and Barrio in here. Cause you got too many, you got too many comers. Well, it's the same thing with when you look at lightweight and 
the you know if you're a heavyweight and you can put two wins together you're in the hunt baby if you're a lightweight and you want to even just be ranked in the top 10 we're asking you like do you have at least a five fight winning streak you know you got tony ferguson who's won what like seven or in a row now at this point and still can't even really sniff a title shot because of everything that's going on there so yeah i, I think that that's only going to continue in some of those lighter weight classes uh, you know, you mentioned though that they, we don't pay too much attention to the UFC rankings because they crazy. But one thing I have noticed talking to fighters recently, they pay ex- attention pretty much exclusively to the UFC rankings. And you can see why they might because it, it affects their livelihoods. Uh, they, there's reason to think that the UFC is paying attention to their own rankings. And yet it's funny how everybody else kind of regards the UFC rankings as like, well, it's kind of dumb. You can't really rely on the the movement to represent what's actually happening in this sport. And yet the fighters are all so focused on it. They can all tell you exactly where they are in the UFC rankings. And can't necessarily tell you where they are in the rankings produced by individual websites. Sure. That's because even though we were led to believe at the beginning that these rankings were kind of going to be all for fun, like they get used an awful lot now, both you'd think in matchmaking and all over the television on, on Fox and UFC uh, pay-per-views. Let's talk a couple minutes about Michael McDonald before we move on, Ben. This is a guy, I think he's still only about 25 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Is he one of those where uh, you have to keep checking yep, Wikipedia? 20, 25, just turned 25 in January. Uh, and, and this is a guy, you know, who pretty recently was 15 and one and had knocked out Miguel Torres in the first round back at UFC 145. Uh, and now is two and three in his last five fights, uh, and has spent some considerable time on the shelf with injuries. Uh, are we, I mean, he's still so young. I don't want to say we're closing the book on, on, on Mayday McDonald, but, uh, he seems to have some work to do to get himself back in the, in, into title contention. Yeah. Well, he is the, you mentioned how young he is, but he's also one of those dudes who started really young and, Kind of the trend that we've seen with some of those guys like, like Jordan Meehan, uh, and maybe now you could even make the argument that we might be seeing the beginning of it with Roy McDonald is you start young, especially at a high level, going hard as a professional, you usually finish kind of young. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a thing that's going on with him here, but when you also say that he's lost three of his last five, you should mention that the three are John Lineker, Uriah Faber, and Henan Barrow. And it seems like right now though, what, if you just painted the picture, of what the last five or six fights tell us, it's that he can beat a lot of good dudes and not really any really good or great dudes. Yeah, and this John Lineker fight, like as I alluded to at the beginning, and I think you might have put this on social media, trading punches with John Lineker is not the style of fight you want to fight against John Lineker. And, you know, McDonald's a guy who's very well-rounded. He's got a lot of submission wins. His last two wins, in fact, over uh, Masanori Kenahara and Brad Pickett are both submission wins. Like, uh, I know, he, I think he tried, maybe took took Lineker down briefly and Lineker got back up. Uh, but, like, as soon as the fisticuff started, McDonald seemed to be down for it. He seemed to be like, okay, let's do this. And obviously that turned out to be you know, a, a bad choice. I wonder if it's, if it's a game plan thing a, as well in terms of, you know, his ratio of success to failure. Yeah. Well, I could tell you that if I am ever called upon to fight John Lineker, uh, my strategy will be the opposite of standing and trading with him. My strategy will be to stay busy, keep my feet moving Mm-hmm. All the way out to the parking lot where sure. my car is parked. Uh-huh. And then you're going to slam your penis in the car door? I really don't know why we keep coming back to this. 
That was one time. That happened one time. You got where they go. No, I think that's a good strategy. I think you got the right strategy. And then I won't stop until I'm in Brock Lesnar's compound, safe and sound. That's right. Until the, the razor wire topped gate slides, slides shut behind you. You get out of the car, guy hands you a bottle of supplements and you just walk into the house. No big deal. <laughs> I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Anyway, that's going to be it for round two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, you've got a must-win fight this weekend for Holly Renee Holm Kirkpatrick as she squares off in the main event of this UFC on Fox event with Valentina Anatolievna Shevchenko. Nice. Kind of nailed it there, yeah. I think. You could have said that one a little more confidence, but otherwise, not too bad. I sounded it out. I know where I'm at. Yeah. So Holly Holm, Ben, tries to regroup from the loss of her title and the first loss of her professional MMA career in her last fight against Misha Tate at UFC 196, a fight that she seemed to have well in hand until she let herself get choked unconscious in the fifth round uh, when Misha Tate locked on that rear naked choke. Valentina Shevchenko also comes in off a loss, interestingly enough, to the new champion, Amanda Nunes. So, uh, Nunes? Nunes? We need to, to get uh, the co-main event podcast style guide up, get updated here to see how we are going to pronounce that moving forward. Uh, Shevchenko, a very decorated kickboxer and Muay Thai fighters, fighter, has wins over the likes of Champy, Joanna Yajacek, in uh, the pure striking art, but comes into this fight against Holly Holm, obviously, uh, as, as part of, under the mixed rules. And, uh, you know, in the main event of UFC on Fox, not a bad position for, for, Holly Holm to find herself in after that loss to Misha Tate. Uh, what do we expect here? What's going to happen? Well, I just broadly kind of expect a Holly Holm victory, but you're right that it is a must-win situation for her. And I feel like this is going to be the point when we finally have to stop saying that, hey, another upset, another surprising uh, turn of events at women's bantamweight just adds one more person to the round-robin potential of that division. I feel like here's where it will stop being like that. I think here's where it would fe feel just like pure chaos for chaos's sake uh and we won't we won't believe that there's anything to believe in anymore uh, i don't think it's where you, you know you see valentina shevchenko win and you're like all right now valentina shevchenko versus ronda rousey is the fight to make when she comes back i just don't see that one happening i think that this one holly holm needs to win this to to keep her career going on the right track and i i would think that some part of the ufc executives is hoping that she'll win this just to keep your hopes up for a Holly Holm, Ronda Rousey rematch at some point. Some part of UFC? Large part. Like the brain part. The, the brain part of their bodies. Uh, also the wallet part. Yes, definitely the, the back pocket area. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, ben Folks throwing down the gauntlet in front of the MMA gods, calling their bluff, saying they ain't got the guts. To make Valentino Shevchenko come out of this one, the victor, to set up that high-profile women's bantamweight title fight we've all been hungering for, Shevchenko versus Nunez. <laughs> the rematch, yeah. Nunez. One of those two. Let's do it again, brother. I think, though, that this is, like, stylistically, 
this is the one Holly Holm should really win. We've seen how different she can be depending on what her opponent does and what her opponent brings. If if she has an opponent that kind of lays back uh, and doesn't come to her very often, it seems like it can be hard for Holly Holm to generate a whole lot of offense, or at least a whole lot of effective offense. When she has to worry about being taken down, she doesn't really seem to want to charge forward and and go after her opponent and really do some damage. But when you're coming after her, then she can be really dangerous. Uh, and I think that against Valentina Shevchenko, she's not going to be super worried about getting taken down and stuck there on the bottom. Uh, and so, you know, and, you're, and if you're Holly Holm, you, you got to think she knows she needs to go out there, maybe put somebody away, get right back in that sweepstakes. Yeah, Holly Holm going off as more than a three to one favorite in this fight, and Valentina Shevchenko as just about a three to one underdog. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, Dana White was very critical of Holly Holm for taking the Misha Tate fight at UFC 196 instead of just kind of cooling her heels to wait for Ronda Rousey to come back. In retrospect, it seemed like that would have, that would have been an even more impossible choice than we thought it was at the time because here we are staring down the barrel of UFC 201 and, and still not a sign of Ronda Rousey. She's still, uh, at Brock Lesnar's compound up there in Saskatchewan. Uh, just trying to work and hard, trying to get better every day, we assume. Uh, and you think that, that this seems like one, like you said, a, a Holly Holm matchup that seems like she could win it. And it seems like it would tee her up to be right back in the mix with Tate and Rousey and now Amanda Nunes, uh, after that, after that victory. Uh, but much like that fight that we talked about earlier with, with Gilbert Melendez and Edson Barboza, man, if you're Holly Holm, this is one you gotta have. And, you know, after those first two UFC fights uh, in 2015, where she looked kind of, you know, I don't want to say mediocre, but she definitely didn't come in and destroy people like she had been on the on the independent circuit. After those two fights and then the wonderful win over Ronda Rousey and then the loss, the last second or last round loss to Misha Tate, like this is one I feel like it's kind of important for her to to look really good and and leave us with the feeling that, yeah, she is one of the the best women in the world, and it's not like she just caught lightning in a bottle that night against Rousey. Yeah, you know, I, I have also thought that, that I wonder what she thinks now of that very vocal criticism from Dana White. Uh, and part of that, we have to admit, is that Dana White has seemed to have it out for Holly Holmes' manager, Lenny Fresquez, since before she got in the UFC. Remember, he was out there talking about how the UFC was not interested in Holly Holm because of the way the negotiations were going. Then the UFC gets Holly Holm. She becomes champion in this huge uh, knockout victory over Ronda Rousey. And then we're right back to criticizing her for wanting to defend the belt. Uh, which, like, if you think about right now, what you're saying is, if you're Dana White, is you're saying you think that this person should have kept the women's bantamweight title out of circulation. Right. I wonder what time. he would feel today. Like, if Holly Holm was still cooling her heels in Albuquerque with the belt on her shoulder, just being like, nope, waiting for Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Like, how would the UFC feel about that today? Uh, and you're right. It seemed like there had been kind of longstanding bad feelings simmering between uh, Holmes' manager and, and Dana White. I think because Holmes' manager had the audacity to get her a good deal yeah. from the UFC and not just, you know, continue to do what the UFC, you know, whatever the UFC wanted to do. Uh, at the At the same time, though, uh, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder if Holly Holm 
does at this point have second thoughts about that Misha Tate fight one and wonder if if you she know, shouldn't she, have gotten taken down? I think that's what she thinks. You think she shouldn't have gotten taken down? Yeah. Well, it's not like she went out there and it proved to be just a terrible idea to even take the fight because she was way out of her depth or she wasn't prepared or whatever. I mean, she was winning that fight and Misha Tate managed to do one of those Misha Tate things she's done, which is pull it out there on the end. And you got to give credit to Misha Tate. And I'm sure Holly Holm wishes that she had, you know, done some things technically different there at the end, but I don't think she has a whole lot to kick herself for like career decision wise. Sure. I'm just saying at this point, it seems like she probably has less bargaining power for sure, uh, with the UFC. Might help to go out there and kick Valentina Shevchenko right in her head. To that end, do you know what Valentina Shevchenko's nickname is? Tina, no, the bullet, okay. Valentina, the bullet, Shevchenko. I like it. I gotta say, I like it. I That's think not it's bad. A solid nickname. It actually, kind of makes me wonder why I haven't heard the bullet trotted out more as a fighter nickname. And yeah, I think it's a. I think that's a solid question. All you have to do to make it really awesome is to add like a either a a descriptive term or a nationality in front of that. Because if you are like, for instance, like you know the Italian bullet or whatever or, or wherever you come from, now you got a little extra pizzazz. Well, see that you could go the Russian bullet with Valentina Shevchenko, which I think is is would be pretty solid. But here on Wikipedia. Her birthplace is listed as being in Kazakhstan, and her nationality is listed as being uh, Kazakh. Is that how you say that? I don't think that's Kazakhstan. Okay, well, uh, Kazakhstan I'm... is a it's, is a different place. What have I encountered here? I there's a bunch of consonants in it, but basically, so we'll stick with the Russian Russian bullet. the Russian bullet, a little republic. One of the Russian bullet is not bad. Oh, Come on. I think that's terrific. I think that's that we need to get on the horn with whoever is handling Valentina Shevchenko's nicknaming rights and 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 pitch this to him. Give him our elevator pitch. The Russian bullet. And and then the next step for us is profit. Right? That's right. That's how it works. Well, after that, the, it's just like you turn on the faucet and money comes out. <laughs> okay. After you've established yourself as I like it. at the height of uh of nicknames. Yeah. All right, well, you want to do Just Saying Stuff? Sure. And then we'll get out of here for this week. I think we have a joint Just Saying Stuff. This I think week. we do. Have we come to a conclusion about what exactly it is we're just saying? Well, as I'm sure our listeners know, this week is the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and one of the more unconventional speakers for this convention that Donald Trump has chosen is none other than your boy UFC President Dana White. What? Who will speak on Tuesday night uh, ostensibly about the economy. Yeah, the topic is supposed to be the economy that night, right? And goofs. To a lesser extent, goofs and dummies. Internet goofs. Yeah. And a fearing nothing, not even death, I assume, will probably be a, one of the major topics. And you know, Certainly not getting your ass handed to you in a nationwide election. And if you are going to write something bad about him in the opinion section of the New York Times, be prepared for him to talk about how you look in your avatar photo, because that's just going to happen. Uh, but what I'm just saying about this, Chad, and I don't know about you, is I found it interesting how when people in the MMA bubble heard that Dana White was going to speak in support of Donald Trump at the RNC, the immediate reaction from a lot of people was, oh man, Dana White is really going to ally himself with Donald Trump. Like that's the association he wants people to think of with him. That seems trouble, especially when the UFC just got sold. The new owners don't have a problem with maybe Dana White going out there in support of a a very controversial person like Donald Trump. Plus, as we mentioned in the Breakfast of Champions, how you going to look your boy Khabib Nurmagomedov in the eye after you went out there and spoke in support of the guy who would have him banned from the United States because of his religion? 
Um, not to mention Donald Trump has personally attacked Ronda Rousey on Twitter, basically because she said she would not vote for him. Uh, you know, a lot of people in MMA wondering, aren't you worried about the association that, that, that might stick to you? And then I see on sites like Politico and the Daily Beast and more politics-oriented sites where they're looking at Dana White and going, can you believe Trump is associating with this guy? He's out there talking about how people have Fedor's nuts in their mouth on Twitter, <laughs> making fun of people's moms, making fun of people, how they look, and Donald Trump wants to associate with him. And so I guess what I'm just saying is that when you have that kind of dueling thing going on, maybe you found yourself a perfect marriage. Really? I was just going to say, so nobody's happy? Maybe that does make the person perfect marriage. I don't know. I'm not thinking past the speech itself because I just can't wait for this thing. I have no idea how this is going to go when Dana White gets up there on the big glittery Trump-designed stage sure, the all gold. in Cleveland, gets in front of the mic, and just starts talking. Because for all of his media experience and his high-profile position in the UFC, anyone that's ever transcribed a Dana White interview knows that he is not the most adept speaker, the not, not the most uh, adroit with the, with the word choices, not the most articulate guy. I wonder, are they going to ha- try to have Dana White stay on some kind of message? Are they going to have him read off a teleprompter? They better. Is he going to mention that he just sold his company to, for $4.2 billion, partially to the Chinese? Because that doesn't seem like it will go over that well. I'm just, man, I'm just excited. I just feel excited for I'm it. I'm not going to miss it for the world. I can't. It's going to be like the biggest, best episode of Looking for a Fight Ever. <laughs> I assume Nick the Tooth will be there, right? Yeah. Nick the Tooth and Matt Sarah will both just hyping them up in the background. What if they film? Do you think that the UFC will film some footage? You know, they like to do backstage looking for a fight, un- unfiltered, yeah. whatever it's called now. So Dana White, like getting into the arena and being like pelted by Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, hanging out with some open carry dudes. Uh, knocking back a few pints. Of course, he's got to try a restaurant while he's in Cleveland. Yeah, tell you they're going to eat some that. great food. Or they'll say that twice in the promo, just like they do for looking for a fight. I'm just excited for it, man. These are exciting times. I can't wait to see Possibly it. the end times. <laughs> it, do, it does make you feel like perhaps historians will look back at the at this as the moment the descent of culture reached its terminal velocity, the moment Dana White took the stage. The good news the is the National New York Times has a story out today about maybe how quickly and, and haphazardly some of the speaking arrangements came together for this one and how a lot of the speeches have not, at, at least from people they'd talked to, been vetted as thoroughly as they had you know, for last, last time when Mitt Romney was the nominee. And they said how the Republican officials had to talk Donald Trump out of – having Don King as a speaker, and they had to say, this is a man who served jail time for stomping someone to death. You can't have a convicted felon like that who has killed somebody get up there and speak in support of you. And Donald Trump reluctantly agreed to not have him speak, according to the New York Times. So good news is at least Dana White passed that low bar to remain as a speaker. I mean, are we are we really going to draw a line between Dana White and Don King? Hasn't like, killed anybody. Like that they're you know different of. people. Yeah, that we know of. All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you how all this stuff happens at UFC on Fox, maybe a little analytical breakdown of how Dana White's speech goes at the Republican National Convention, and then we will look ahead to uh, UFC 201, right, which is uh, Lawler against Tyron Woodley. Capping off a crazy July. So that's that'll be all good fun. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Matter of fact, now that I think about it, all I can say about Chad Dundas is that he hasn't killed anybody that I know of. That you know of. Maybe I beat a guy to death out in behind the IGA in Pablo when I was in high school. You would have no way of knowing. See, maybe that means that all, all it tells me is that you are more successful at it. 
All right, so I'm looking at uh, maybe Kyrgyzstan. Is how you say this? There's definitely a G in there. K Y R G Y Z. Yeah. Yeah. Get J chips. 